always say the difference between a, a 4,000 calorie diet and a 6,000 calorie diet is six cups of white rice. <laughs> and it just makes it easier to eat. And you probably don't need any more micronutrients at that point because you've satisfied, hopefully, with a good diverse diet, you've satisfied all of your protein, fat, and carb macronutrients and all your potassium and fiber you know, micronutrient requirements within the 4,000 calorie diet. And then the rest is just to maintain your mass or your workload. This is the Strategy of Fitness podcast. Our goal is to energize and entertain fitness enthusiasts by sharing insights from experts in the health and wellness community. From physical therapy perspectives to interviews with professional athletes, special operators, nutritionists, and coaches, we want to help you be your best self. Welcome to the Strategy of Fitness. Whoop in the strategy of fitness. It has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Check out the link in our Instagram bio. Get $30 off your first month subscription. Get the brand new 4.0 and start this year off right. Track your sleep, track your recovery, track your daily strain. There's no better tech to wear every single day and hold you accountable. Of course, this podcast is your weekly accountability buddy, but there's nothing better on the market than Whoop. Check it out. Welcome back to the Strategy of Fitness Podcast. My name is Nick Cressy, joined weekly by Dan Gorn and Rob Roland. What up, boys? Nothing, man. Got the uh, brisket, 14 pounds, cooking this weekend, so pretty excited about that. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing quite fine now that, uh, that Nick is here. He he summer-slammed us, came in out of nowhere to the interview, totally derailed it. So it's like two different interviews in one. It's great. We got two sides to stand. You motherfuckers have one of the baddest, certifiably baddest motherfuckers on earth on this goddamn podcast, and you're talking about diet. I love his book. I love what he's put out. I love his everything that he says. He is fantastic, and he is very intelligent. That should be episode two with this absolute legend, because the numbers that we barely scratch the surface on, so this guy is not a normal person. What do you do if you go in the gym? There's a 50 year old dude just hitting singles with 455 for speed. There's four plates and a 25 working on, on his the speed, bar. working on his speed on 455 off his chest. And he's like, if Stone Cold Steve Austin was on like a really good training plan, and then you also just made him look fake because this man barely fit in the Zoom. He and just cut that <laughs> amazing. That's, that's a good point. Right. He barely fit in the Zoom. You guys feel when he talks about those numbers. It's like when um, I hear Neil deGrasse Tyson and he talks about fucking miles from Mars. I'm like, like it doesn't like I, I, I might not even seem impressed, but I, it doesn't even compute my fucking head. <laughs> my skull doesn't even work around those numbers. It's so true. Right. That's a really good point. Quick question. So you're at the gym. You're back in the commercial gym, Nick. It's Monday night. You're there because you got to get to work on this Monday night football. Raven Steelers. It's tie game. Two minute drill. Big Ben's back on the field. He's out of retirement. And then Stan walks in, he's got four <laughs> plates and a 25 in the bar. Are you going to watch the game or do you want to see what this dude is going to do on the bench? No. That kind of way. I got to watch the thing that I've never seen before. It's, <laughs> it's, it's this absolute specimen behind me, you know, working on speed reps off his chest, <laughs> probably in like Under Armour sweatpants and like a vertical t-shirt. Oh yeah. Also, also, Dan, you never prepare for the pod. Dan goes out, buys a book, reads it in fucking one week to talk about the book with the guests that he has on. Fuck yourself, Dan. Thanks, guys. 
No, that was great. That was, great. I know. It was good. Sport. It, he's a great sport. And and like with Dan Jolly, kind of talk, I would love to set up that relationship. First off, we need to get Dan back on some point soon. But also, we need to set that relationship up because I think that that guy, what Stan has come from and where he's going and where he's gone and where he's going is one of the coolest things ever from being that scrawny little guy to just being one of the, like I said, not being able to fit in the fucking Zoom. It was absurd. So great. What'd you guys hit this week? And did you do any biking, Rob, like a pussy? <laughs> I was doing some speed reps with an empty bar when I was warming up for, for bench. Does that, does that count? No, but on the real, uh, you guys hit anything good in the gym? One thing I'll touch on is uh, I sent you guys the video last week. I took on uh, the 100-pound goblet squat challenge. Dude, that was not fun. I videoed it, which I never do, just so I could send it to you guys. And then I quickly realized I was kind of short in the lockouts. Um, I still think I got the full brunt of the workout, but um, that's not fun. Your depth was good. I, I will say, you know, and, and I don't want to be a stickler with any of your lifts, but but you've been um, critiquing my list for the better part of 10 years now. I got to see another video with full lockout at each one. Cause you know, I didn't hit the 50, I got 31, but there were 31. I think anybody would look at those reps and, and count those reps. I got to see a full lockout. And also, do you have a little bit more respect for me for hitting 31 after trying it for yourself? Oh yeah, dude. I have respect for you. And you sent the vid- just, just taking that on and going for, I got respect for everybody that'll try that, but um, yeah, I'll redo it. I, I don't want to do it anytime soon. Cause I squatted two days after that. And it's just like, I feel like I'm still trying to tread water and catch up. That volume is not fun to throw into the league. How about this? Next time you do it, I'll retest. So, hashtag solidarity. Fair enough. Then, no comments on the video with the, the little dude coming in on like rep 48 and almost like <laughs> derailing the whole workout. I saw that. It just makes me like, I don't know. Just I, that's why I don't work out with it. Well, actually, I can't say that. Bailey comes in to, to, to work out with me sometimes. But Max, he's not within 100 yards of me working out. He's, he's got a restraining order. He's he's a terrorist. Yeah, and anyone out there that takes that challenge on, make sure you tag us. I haven't heard a lot of people stepping up to the plate to even attempt it. So good on you boys for even trying it. It ain't fun. <laughs> no, it doesn't look like it. I mean, 50 is a big number, and it's, I would imagine it's as mental as it is anything. And you really went out fast, Rob. So, I mean, you talk about time under tension, and some of those weren't locked out, but I almost I don't I don't think they benefited you, to be honest with you. Well, it might have made yeah. it worse because that standing, I mean. like, that was my fucking rest. Like, you'll see me on, like, rest 11, like, 22. I was, like, every 10 or so, I would just stand just to get your, you know, get that time out of there. Yeah, Rob did not stop. No. <laughs> well, you made me nervous with the chest fatigue, and I'm, like, I was letting go of the dumbbell and trying to, like, get my hands arrested, rest, and I was, like, at 30 and i'm like i don't even feel my chest work what the, what the hell is dan talking about I, I i and again i can't express to our listeners how fucking weak my anterior wall of my chest and my my delts are it is dude you did one set of flies and your your whole titty blew up i i, I i'm telling you it's like i wish You're i literally the opposite of the white rhino i'm the opposite it's like it's really frustrating, but either way, you know, it is what it is. I, I but I, I can't believe you didn't feel out of your chest at all. That's all, the only place I felt that everything else was fine and it, <laughs> it, it, it completely ruined me. <laughs> what, uh, what'd you get into, Dan? Um, I sent you guys the Tom Platt squat complex. I've talked about it on here before. So it's 20 reps, it's a back squat complex 20 reps, 18, 16, 14, 12, 10, 8, 8. Eight, and it usually gives you a two minute rest and you're trying to work up to like somewhere like 75% of your one rep max. And this only gave you 90 second rest. So it jacked my numbers all up. I think I finished up with eight reps at 225, which is I think I, the best I've done is eight reps at 240. 
But I'm telling you, after that volume, it is one of the absolute worst workouts I've ever done. And the 90-second rest was completely threw me off. Two questions. What do you do the 20 reps set at? I've done it as high as 135. This time, I, went, I started at 105, I believe. And then how long do you feel that in your legs before you feel like you recovered from that workout? I'm feeling every bit of it. I, so I ran this morning. I ran a pretty good clip. I was under 730 mile pace for three miles. Like ran, ran a pretty decent clip for myself and it felt pretty, pretty good. But the before and after was horrible and I still feel it right now. So we're talking Sunday. I feel it every bit through Thursday evening. Wow. That's why you're doing legs once a week. Nick, uh, what, what do you got for us? Uh, nothing good. Uh, well, I mean, I guess I did a couple lifts. I did a hang hang power pause hang power at three fifteen yesterday. That was fun. Um, Easy. Yeah, it was it was good. It's so weird. Such a mental lift. I feel like getting back into more of the metcons, amrap stuff like that. But as Stan mentions in his piece, he was talking about it a little differently. He was talking diet, but and bodybuilding, but. I'm not, I'm not ready to be under 200 pounds yet. I kind of like being like 201, 202. There's a big difference between that and 196, 197. And not only what I can eat, but also like how weight feels off the ground. It's funny to say, like, you wouldn't think four or five pounds makes that much of a difference, but it kind of does. Another thing I want to touch on you, Nick, when's the last time you took a full off day for gym? I, I just want to get this out on the air. <laughs> it's been a long time. <laughs> I, I, mean, I always do something. Is it, like, has it been a month? Has it been six months? Are we talking a year? No, years. it hasn't been a six months or a year. There's been some bad hangovers mixed in there, but it's certainly been <laughs> over a month. And look, again, that doesn't mean that I'm doing something like all that active. Like it means that I'm hitting 50 pull-ups and some GHDs the way you're supposed to. Like that's an off day maintenance day, maybe some stretching and some handstand walking. Like stupid stuff like that. So, like, they're not even registering on a whoop. That's like a seven or an eight strain day. Those are typically what I'm doing for my maintenance days. So, I mean. Yeah, I mean, that's, it doesn't sound that addicted to, to working out, but then I see what's like you bring to your family trips. Like, half your cargo space goes towards workout equipment so you can yeah. keep the routine going while you're in Deep Creek. So, yeah. It, I, there's no chance in this fucking world I'm ever taking a week off unless I have a broken bone or something. That that shit like legitimately freaks me out. Freaks me out. I hate that. Don't do it. Speaking of uh, never taking time off, let's tee up our guest, Dan. Good find. He's absolutely fantastic. It's Dan the White Rhino efforting. Uh, one of the most brilliant dudes in terms of uh, nutrition and just sports science and strength and conditioning. Very accomplished powerlifter and bodybuilder in his own right and fucking fascinating interview and learned a ton from him so hope you guys enjoy as much as we did we are joined by the great stan efforting stan how are you doing tonight sir good brother how are you i'm doing good man so first off stan the white rhino one of the most badass and best nicknames in the history of all time so i love that nickname glad you joined us and i have been cruising through your book the vertical diet which uh dave lipston recommended to us on the last podcast and first off kudos to you it's one of the most thorough and easy to digest apart in the pun books about eating that i've ever read but really love it and if you want to really understand how good this book is you all you have to do is look at the index i mean there are so many well-cited journal articles 
to, to back up all of what you're saying. And you offer so many terrific options. So I know we just did a whole nutrition podcast for our listeners, but having Stan in the, the creator of the vertical diet, there's about a million questions I have for you, but let's start with your health concerns, the stuff that you were dealing with that made you make a change with what you were putting in your body. Like you had some serious shit going on, right, Stan? Yeah, both for me and for my athletes over the years. Remember, I was I studied exercise science in college, and I was training athletes back as early as the late 1980s for competition. Women in particular would suffer more than the men. They would, they generally tend to be more disciplined and work harder and will just punish themselves. And so I've been watching it for a long time. I, I was uh, a high school soccer coach, and then I coached track athletes and football players at the University of Oregon through the most of the 90s. And I saw a lot of athletes with the same problem, the chronic calorie restriction, anemia, you know, shin splints from osteoporosis, uh, a whole host of things that generally happens to women in particular who over-restrict and diet too hard and, and train too much. The guys generally, I'd see it on the other end. I'd see the bulkers. And I, of course, put myself through that many times, the dirty bulks back in the early 90s with the go mad and the you know gallon of milk a day and the uh, cheese pizzas every night and you know all the pizza pasta pancakes just to get the most enormous calorie surplus possible and so I ended up with metabolic syndrome, fatty liver, high blood sugars, high blood pressure, very common amongst powerlifters, strong men, even linemen in football. So you know I have a long long history of working with that kind of thing and and of course you know for at least ten years while I was competing at my peak in my late 30s and throughout my 40s, I got blood tests on almost a monthly basis. I could literally watch this happening to myself as I got into those bulks. And then, you know, I've diet down for bodybuilding, which was probably my saving grace is that I actually did switch back and forth from bulking to dieting and was able to reverse a lot of those problems. So just by virtue of the fact that I, uh, I loved competing in both sports, it probably wasn't, you know, a plan of mine necessarily. And so, yes, I, I've experienced all of those problems. I witnessed them. I watched them. And then I implemented a whole host of different interventions, which you were you know, talking about in the book, which is more than just diet, that allowed me to kind of mitigate some of that damage, blood pressure, blood sugars, fatty liver, high cholesterol, all those things. And so that's a lot of what I do now when I work with athletes uh, on both ends of the spectrum, chronic dieters and, and dirty bulkers is just get them to pay attention to their general health. Love that perspective. And one of the things when I'm, you know, meal prepping and when I'm thinking like, man, I'm hitting the absolute best meal prep when I have my white rice, my chicken and my broccoli and or my Brussels sprouts. Those are kind of my two favorite veggies that I go between. And I love the way you, you said you don't vilify like, oh, that's not good for you or that's not good. It's like, okay, this is good, but this is a little bit better. And one of the things is you're really high on red meat versus the chicken. And I want you to explain to our listeners why you prefer red meat versus chicken. And then also why you prefer the potatoes in any forms, be it sweet potatoes or white potatoes versus the rice for most people. I know there's exceptions. Yeah. Well, you hit the nail on the head. I think when people diet, they become pretty restrictive as to the variety of foods that they intake. And we see that in these guru diets, these bodybuilding figure physique bikini diets, that, you know, it's chicken breast and broccoli and tilapia and maybe a scoop of peanut butter. And that's the egg whites and some protein powder. And that, kind of really sums up the total of their food selections. Red meat to me specifically or, or particularly became important for women. Three times higher in iron, six times higher in zinc, nine times higher in B vitamins. And a lot of women would end up with anemia from obviously the menstrual cycle, the overtraining, not eating sufficient iron in the diet, 
And so that was kind of one of the main reasons I introduced it. Just as a matter of, uh, of experience, I just witnessed the transformation in their energy and their physiques and their sleep. You know, equating for calories, you could probably achieve the same result. But, you know, as I mentioned, behind the scenes, what's happening to your health in the meantime? How much are you suffering during this process? And we're seeing this more and more now with all of the information that we have. It, it, it's really, it's not necessary to suffer that much. Uh, the last month, I understand, and you've heard me say before, there's a big difference between fitness and health. You know, competing is not necessarily healthy and fitness being the ability to perform a particular duty or task and the fitness level required to compete in a bodybuilding show or be a strong man or UFC fighter is not healthy, but we can do a lot of things to mitigate the damage. And so, yeah, red meat's just higher in a variety of micronutrients that are especially important for women. And then a variety of protein sources, you know, we use the egg white and we throw away the egg yolk and there's your choline and your biotin, uh, you know, which is really important for hair, skin, nails, and for your liver. Dairy is often demonized, particularly for women diets. Uh, fruit is often demonized and, you know, we need calcium and we need fiber and phytonutrients. And so it's really, I think, more diverse. Uh, there are certainly some things that I try and be cautious of in the diet based on people's digestive response, but it, it is not intended to be restrictive. It's intended to be selective and it's much more inclusive of a variety of different protein sources that are more micronutrient dense, I think, than the traditional guru diet. And then as for the potatoes, I mean, once I get a variety of protein sources and satisfy that demand, a gram of protein per pound of body weight from meat, fish, eggs, dairy, then I'm on to the micronutrients and, and first and foremost being potassium. I found that to be critical for performance and for a host of other benefits for athletes. And getting 4,700 milligrams of potassium is kind of hard to do. You have to be deliberate about it. And so I picked the highest potassium foods, which is potatoes, fruit, yogurt, you know, spinach. They're all high in potassium. And I kind of lead with those as my first carbohydrates. You know, I'll add to that as needed by the individual, uh, whether I'm throwing in some oatmeal for fiber. And then eventually, you know, if I've got a, a big athlete or a highly active individual like a CrossFitter, you know, it's hard to stuff them full of bread or oatmeal because they start to uh, reject you know, massive amounts of those things with bloating and gas. And so I'll, then I, I start introducing the white rice just as a, a matter of it being easy to digest and to fuel a 4,000 plus calorie diet. So Dan brought up red meat. So I got to go there. We got to talk for on the carnivore diet for a minute. So it, anybody that you work with, you find these elimination diets beneficial for, or is this just one of those, those fat things that you, that you don't even pay attention to? Well, you know, I've said many times I'm a big fan of red meat, but I'm also cautious about the cholesterol intake. And so I'm using a leaner red meat. I should say saturated fat intake and its impact on LDLs and particularly with larger athletes with, uh, you know, higher caloric intake. So I am kind of careful about saturated fats in that regard, butter, bacon, uh, and really fatty meats. But as for the restriction or the, the elimination diets, and it's important that people understand that those are prescribed for individuals with IBS. That is a, actually an accepted clinical intervention. And the low FODMAP diet is the most well-studied and documented effective for 60 to 80% of people who go on a low FODMAP, F-O-D-M-A-P, fermentable oligodye monosaccharides and polyols they see a significant improvement in their symptoms from IBS. And, I, you know, sometimes you have to be even more restrictive initially. Maybe they have some extreme 
digestive conditions. And I've said that the, the carnivore diet, probably just red meat and maybe egg yolks and some salmon, is probably, if you had to eliminate everything else, the ultimate elimination diet that would still provide you sufficient micronutrients and energy so that you could at least get through that early intervention and experience some relief of symptoms and then reintroduce. That's very important that you understand that the carnivore diet is intended to be initial intervention for serious conditions. And a lot of people have utilized that with much success, but the idea that you have to stay on that forever, I don't think that's a long-term plan. Makes sense. It well said. Well, you're in there. You, you referenced you stay away from the fatty meats. So let's, let's stay on red meats for a second. What, what are your proteins of choice if you're going to go for red meats? Is it just the lean grounds? Is there a benefit to having the ground meat, beef as far as absorption, or is that kind of a myth? Yeah, well, let me hit on that in terms of general health. I mentioned saturated fats. You want to keep those below 10% of your total calories. I don't like to demonize any individual foods. You, you spoke earlier and talked about not demonizing foods, good food, bad food. But look more at dietary patterns, the overall dietary pattern. What are you know the macronutrient percentages as a whole? Are you getting sufficient fiber? Are you getting sufficient protein? What's your overall cholesterol intake? And then the micronutrients, of course, as we discussed. And so, you know, if you're going to eat a fattier meat, say a New York steak or even a ribeye, then that would probably fill up your allotment of saturated fat for the day, you know, of 10% of total calories. Now you might have to do a little more egg whites with one yolk, and you might have to do fat-free yogurt. But if you use a top sirloin steak, which is much leaner, then you can might be able to use a 1% or a 2% fat yogurt, and you might be able to use more whole eggs as part of the whole dietary pattern. And so that's kind of how I look at it overall. And again, it's not just red meat. You get protein from eggs, protein from dairy, protein from salmon. You can throw some chicken in there as well. But that's it's kind of how I map it out. And as for you know steak versus ground beef, that's really a satiety determination. If I've got someone dieting, then I'm going to put them on steak because it's more satiating. And the, the biggest thing that I want to do is satisfy their hunger. And if they're just mechanically speaking, cutting steak, chewing on it, it just takes longer to eat, longer to digest, keeps them full a little longer. But if I've got a, an athlete that's got a down five plus thousand calories a day, now I'm using a ground beef, uh, mixing it with a little bone broth and white rice and some, you know, maybe a little scrambled egg, and I'm making the monster mash. And so they can shovel down massive amounts of it and digest it quicker and eat again sooner. It's, it's really just how you kind of satisfy what, you know, the individual needs are for those people based on hunger. Yeah, I don't think I've ever compared it on the satiety uh, scale with the ground beef versus steak, but that that makes a lot of sense, especially when we start talking about these higher protein intakes and you you threw out the one gram per pound of body weight. And that's something I've always used in like a rehab setting for people that are post-operative. I feel like it's a good goal. And it's usually like a shocking number for people because once they track, they're not even close to that. So is that prescription across the board? Is that a number everybody has to hit? Or are there certain populations that you might modify that number a little bit with? If they have significant obesity, then we're looking at a gram of protein per pound of lean weight just so that we don't exceed their caloric intake and fill it all up with only protein so they can get sufficient fats and maybe have some opportunity to get some vegetables in, you know, carbohydrates in general, which are more rich in potassium. But other than that, I'm pretty keen on the protein. Now, in a calorie surplus, the carbs and the calories become protein sparing. And since proteins has a high thermic effect of food and, a, and it uh, fills you up, I might reduce protein for someone in a calorie surplus because it's not necessary to have for muscle protein synthesis, and they might 
need the appetite availability more than more protein. And then for somebody dieting, I'm going to actually go up to 1.2 grams per pound. Again, thermic effect of food, satiety. They just feel like they're eating more, even though they're netting out fewer calories because they only get 70% of those total calories as a result of the thermic effect of food. And it just satiates them more. So there's different strategies I use based on surplus or deficit. One thing you touched on very quickly that I would like you to go back to and explain to our listeners, because it's really great. The book has an awesome breakdown, the low and high FODMAP. And I believe the difference is mostly due to the ability to digest, you know, the low FODMAP. Tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but the low FODMAP foods, a lot easier to digest. The high ones, a lot harder to digest and could lead to more digestive issues. But explain some of the thinking behind that and, and kind of how the listener could use that in their own yeah, and you know, the science is out of uh, Australia, Monash University. Uh, this has been well studied. They've done a lot of peer-reviewed, published, randomized controlled trials using the FODMAP diet as an intervention for IBS. And it's, uh, it's proven to be substantially effective. And you're absolutely right. Some people don't have the microbiome diversity or quantity of bacteria to adequately digest some of those fiber sources that aren't digested in the, the small intestine. And so it, they create more methane, and that could create painful gas and bloating for some people. It can get so bad. And then there's also the quote-unquote leaky gut, these foods penetrating the you know single-cell membrane and getting into the bloodstream as a result of the inability to digest. And so that's just at least initially the intervention to help address those symptoms, but then the goal would be to, over time, slowly reintroduce small amounts of those. And I always point out, and we've talked about it in the book, this is individualistic. Not everybody has these problems. There's no need to restrict if you can digest these foods, fine. It's dose-dependent, of course, the amount. If you know me, you know I'm always on the run, up early and home late. So having a three-hour morning routine isn't really in the cards for me. What is in the cards is AG1. It's a fast way to get vitamins and minerals I need to perform. I first gave AG1 a try because it was, I wanted a single solution that helps support my entire body by filling in nutrient gaps and simplifying my morning routine. Since drinking AG1 daily, I've always felt strong and energized and ready to attack the day. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more, it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's one scoop mixed in water once a day and every day. I know that AG1 is giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process so you know that it's safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrition density. AG1 is a supplement that I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. Here is your chance to start every day this season with a gift to yourself. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash provengrit. That's drinkag1.com slash provengrit. Check it out. It's how they're prepared can matter. Uh, a well-cooked soft broccoli is going to yield fewer FODMAPs than a, a raw. And uh, it's cumulative in nature. You might be able to handle a, a portion one day, but if you eat it again the next and again the next, then you may start accumulating more than what your body can, can digest. And so you've got to be cautious not to, again, label these as good food, bad foods. 
And then hopefully with reintroduction and over time, people can improve their uh, microbiome. This was studied, uh, I forget the name of the gentleman out of Stanford recently. He's been uh, out talking about the, the study quite a bit. That when they significantly increased fiber in study groups, about a third of them would respond very poorly, about a third of them would be non-responsive, and about a third would respond very well. And it came down to how much diversity they had going into the experiment as to how well they could digest the fibers. And so, and I think there's currently following up with another study now, if, if they would titrate slower progression, introducing fiber on the people who had the more limited uh, microbiome quantity and diversity, then they might respond better. And that's what they're, they're studying now. And it's, it seems plausible. And that's generally what happens with people who uh, have IBS and go on the low FODMAP diet and reintroduce. They're generally able to tolerate those foods better. I also would say that I use a lot of these low FODMAPs because they're easier to digest for people who are trying to take in an enormous amount of calories. And everything north of the calories that provide them their micronutrients and fiber, I kind of want to be lower in fiber and easier to digest. And that's kind of why I throw white rice. I would say the difference between a, a 4,000 calorie diet and a 6,000 calorie diet is six cups of white rice. <laughs> and it just makes it easier to eat. And you probably don't need any more micronutrients at that point because you've satisfied, hopefully with a good diverse diet, you've satisfied all of your protein, fat, and carb macronutrients and all your potassium and fiber you know, micronutrient requirements within the 4,000 calorie diet. And then the rest is just to maintain your mass or your workload. Stan, I joined a little late. It's great to meet you. I got to hijack this interview and talk about some of the shit I'm reading about you on Wikipedia, bro. This is in just <laughs> absolute insanity. I need to know how a guy gets a college scholarship to go play soccer and turns in to this. Give us a little background on that, man. I always like to hear how it started before we get to, look, you're smart and we'll talk all about that. But give me the background. Yeah, I was a skinny kid, 98 pounds in high school as a wrestler, freshman and sophomore. 106 is a junior, 115 is a senior. I got Let's to, go. <laughs> I got they, to college. They just made a new best friend. <laughs> Fuck yeah, I was 103 my freshman year. Yeah, I love it. Let's go. Yeah, got to college as a freshman. I weighed 135 and I went in with all the frat boys to bench one day at the gym. Put 135 on the bench and it crushed me, absolutely buried me. <laughs> and I still remember it. You know, I, I still have to seek therapy for it because you know, everybody else was, of course, repping out 135. And I was the scrawniest little kid in college that uh, with all the frat boys that had to take the, the 45s off and put the 35s on to get a rep. And uh, some 10 years later, I benched 600. And I, that, that process was long and it was uh, challenging and discouraging. And as you can imagine, I, got Arnold Schwarzenegger's encyclopedia bodybuilding and started training two hours a day, seven days a week and eating the bodybuilding diet that the guy behind the desk at Gold's gym was eating tuna fish and rice cakes and thought I was going to get huge on that. Obviously I didn't. And it took me two years and I was still only 158 pounds in my first bodybuilding show where I placed like 10th in the novice lightweight and, uh, and finally bumped into a, a coach, gym owner, uh, competitor, bodybuilding judge who said look you you you've you flipped the script you're supposed to be training less and eating more once i made that intervention and started carrying around food in my college book bag instead of books and uh, cut my training down to three days a week i started growing i started gaining weight at that point it was fantastic yeah and i think one of the coolest things when i read your background is 
you walk the walk, you talk the talk, but man, being one of the strongest bodybuilders, so many people, I, I used to work out in the gym in Chula Vista and Imperial beach. And there were a lot of bodybuilders in there. I was very interested in their training. I would just kind of watch them from afar, very strong guys, but never blew me away from like, wow, that's the strongest human I've ever seen type thing. You did both. And I think that's pretty rare, right? Because typically those guys are, are sitting there, they're fine tuning this machine you were a bit different because you were so ridiculously strong. Why were you unique in that sense? From the day I started lifting, my perception was the stronger I got, the bigger I would get. So I was always in there maxing out every damn workout. <laughs> and uh, I got really strong, but I didn't get very big. Uh, we know those singles and triples uh, just don't build a lot of mass. And you know, we finally, all these years later, have learned that you want a greater range of motion. You want some more repetition, some more volume and frequency. You know, because I was competing in both, I think that obviously bodybuilding contributed to powerlifting. I didn't have any weaknesses and I had a lot of, I was doing a lot of volume and frequency. So my GPP was great. I worked from a variety of angles uh, through full ranges of motion, but the powerlifting, I don't feel contributed to the bodybuilding. If anything, I felt like it hurt it. And later in my career, when I discovered that, uh, I was a little more cautious about how I trained for each. And finally in 2009, Flex Wheeler just told me, look, you're not going to do any squats, benches, or deadlifts. And for six months, I didn't do a single squat, a single bench press, or a single deadlift. And he just had me doing a lot greater range of motion, more bodybuilding-type movements, higher repetitions, shorter rest periods. And by shorter, I mean you know two minutes as opposed to five or seven. And it was very effective for me, and I finally started growing under that tutelage. When I say growing, I mean as would be necessary to compete at an IFBB level. So let's talk about that because I'm a moron, for one, and these guys always make fun of me. And what I'm hearing you say is smarter, not harder, not only from a diet perspective, but from a training perspective. Front end, we talk diet. I'm sure back end, we'll talk diet. But let's talk from that training perspective because I think one of the Hardest things for me to get my head around is the modalities, the mixing of strategies, whether it's time under tension. I think that's what Dan's doing a lot right now through Dave Lipson's programming. He's getting a lot of really good. I mean, he did CrossFit for what, four or five years, Dan, and then has has moved over to this more bodybuilding type working out and really his body's responding much better. I, I Definitely from a cosmetic sense, a lot different. And I think that like, yeah, it's just, it's a totally different workout, but I think, yeah, it's just, it's different. And you're spending so much time under tension. I think the muscle kind of like what, um, that Steve trip, when he trip was saying is like the muscle doesn't care. Like the muscle is going to respond to the tension you place on it, you know? And then from a longevity standpoint, that's kind of what I was circling back to here, Stan. So it sounds like later on in your career, you started to realize, Hey, I can do this smarter, more efficiently, potentially, by mixing in different rep ranges, different rest periods, et cetera. And I'm assuming you didn't have to do that 600 pound bench. You could get the same out of a 300 pound workout as you were getting in that three to five rep. Let's see how brutally, you know, blunt strength I can get. Yeah. I mean, we're blessed now. We, I didn't have the internet back when I started training and uh, it's been the last I'd say five to eight years. We've been blessed with some of the, the best research and researchers who also lift the Brad Schoenfelds of the world and Brad Contreras's and Greg Knuckles at Mass Research Review. And of course, the nutrition side, the Lane Norton's and Alan Argon's. And I mean, there's just so much great information out there now that it's, it's almost a shame if, if you're not applying Brad Schoenfeld's hypertrophy principles. And 
We know now that, you know, a greater range of motion. Uh, we know that uh, any rep range between 6 and 30, as long as you get to within a rep or two of failure, is going to provide uh, an equivalent hypertrophy response. And you might go to the lower end if you want to be a little stronger and go to the higher end if you want mu- more muscular endurance. But generally speaking, and Brad said this himself, he said, the bros were right. What I saw in the early 90s when I drove all the way down to Gold's Venice to watch all of the, you know, the Mecca at Gold's Gym and watch all the pros train and, and try and ask questions here and there. They all trained twice a day. They trained in that 8 to 15 rep range. They did you know, a significant amount of volume. They trained every body part twice a week. Uh, they ate six times a day. They slept nine hours a night. They napped every afternoon. and They lived, breathed, ate, and thought bodybuilding. And we're seeing that a lot of that now is, has been proven in uh, you know, randomized controlled trials. And you know, now we have a kind of a, a pathway or at least a some proven science so that we know that certain things, again, training every body part twice a week, eight to 15 reps, maybe an occasional six and a finish with an AMRAP. And then the, you know, the RPE get within a rep or two of failure is, you know, kind of the best way. And then a progression, obviously. And we, now we know that we've learned a lot of other things too. We've learned that uh, mechanical tension is the primary driver of hypertrophy volume, probably being secondary to that. And, Muscle damage probably being only a, a consequence of training hard, but certainly not a driver of hypertrophy. Whereas we used to think that, you know, how much, how sore you got was the driver. And so now we're a little smarter with our stimulus to fatigue ratio and which exercises we do and uh, how much eccentric loading we do. And, and that applies very well, you know, to athletes as well, who, you know, it's probably not necessary for them to accumulate a significant amount of fatigue in the gym as they can generate some good force production from a a low fatigue workout. So, you know, I could go on and on, but I I think we kind of know now, generally speaking, what builds muscle, what develops strength, and that we probably can be a little more patient with our programs and not try and crush ourselves. And there's just, there's no trophy given for how much pain you go through. You may have answered this already, but I'll ask it anyway. We can write books about what to do. What is the one thing, the magic bullet, which there are none, but in this question there is, the one thing people shouldn't do, you see them do it every time, diet and conditioning, strength and conditioning, whatever you want to call it. Are there two big themes that you see and you're like, why do people always do this? I don't know. I have a short list of things that make you weak. Uh, I did a video on it, but uh, you know, one, first and foremost, is not getting sufficient recuperation outside of the gym. That's where I focused a lot of my attention. I was the little guy trying to catch up with all the big guys. And so I had to do everything outside the gym. I ate on a clock. I slept, you know, I never missed an hour of sleep. I didn't go out at night. So the recovery portion is huge. I think the biggest mistake was the one that I made, you know, initially training and that a lot of young athletes make, or even people that try and, you know, stay ripped all year round. It's just not getting sufficient calories or protein to grow. You may have to go through phases where, you know, your six pack becomes a four pack. If you want to add any, significant amount of muscle that's not going to immediately go away when you diet down. I like to periodize uh, my athletes through, you know, bulking and cutting programs and building muscle necessitates, at least for an intermediate or advanced lifter, uh, a modest calorie surplus. And then you got to be cautious about how aggressive you are in the cut, that you aren't chewing up muscle tissue by, you know, over doing too much cardio, too much calorie restriction, insufficient protein, not, a, you know, not enough sleep, but you really have to be more disciplined, more consistent, and more patient over the course of an extended period of time, you know, not months, but years, build substantial mass that you can actually hold on to. 
You know, we give Dan shit all the time because he was doing 100 grams of protein when we first started this podcast, like a little bitch. And we said, what are you doing, man? And, you know, now he's up to 200, you know, and God damn, he looks good. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, man, I think there's intention to it too. You know, um, you know, part of part of the I think I think people struggle with the self. Like I have a podcast, I talk about this. I do rehab, you know, talking to people about their protein intake, but sometimes it takes a, a brutal look in the mirror and, and it takes measuring your food. It takes measuring, you know, how much you're eating a day. And, you know, it, it really is a wake-up call for a lot of people and, and what they're taking to their body. Um, one of the things I think you did a great job of is talk about sodium, the importance of sodium. And it's been vilified. I think there was a bunch of studies done in the 1970s that were kind of bullshit, you know, in terms of sodium being a, a primary contributing factor to high blood pressure, hypertension. But for the general athlete out there, the crossfitter, the high level powerlifter, bodybuilder, what quick recommendation could you give them to improve their sodium intake and to improve their performance? Well, I have to start by saying, you know, the medical community will flip a lid if I mention salt without distinguishing the fact that there are salt-sensitive individuals who are hypertensive. About 30% of the population respond poorly to sodium and do will increase their blood pressure, and that is a, a cardiovascular disease risk. Those people are generally overweight, sedentary. That's probably more why they respond poorly to sodium. There's also 5 to 15% of the population that's reverse salt-sensitive, but if they try and reduce sodium, their blood pressure goes up. Now, when I talk about sodium recommendations, I'm talking about athletes. I'm talking about people who are generally eating a reasonably clean diet. They don't eat fast food. They don't eat a lot of packaged food. You're probably not going to need to add much sodium to your diet if you're eating Pringles and and, uh, bacon double cheeseburgers. But for a lot of the people that I deal with and myself, I eat pretty clean. I cook all my own food at home. And so I add salt back into my diet. And that uh, definitely helps my performance, particularly when you're in a hot climate or sweating. Salty sweaters, you know, I've reached out to Dr. Sandra Grodick at the Heat Institute. She's a PhD in thermoregulation and hydration, and she does all the sweat testing for a lot of the NFL football teams. And so I had them send me sweat tests for a lot of the professional athletes that I worked with. So we could see how many uh, grams of sodium they sweat out. Lane Johnson from Philadelphia Eagles sweats out five grams of sodium an hour. You have to be very deliberate about getting that back because you can't give him five grams of sodium in one hour. You have to introduce that throughout the day and meals and then pre and post exercise. What we do now is we weigh athletes before and after training. And when they lose two pounds, I'll just give you a prescription for every two pounds or one kilo that you lose. You're supposed to drink back about a liter and a half of water. And that should have from 500 to 1,000 milligrams of sodium and about a 5% glucose or dextrose solution. And that would be the best way to rehydrate following training. And it would be measured against your weight loss. And the only fine tuning you do from there is if, again, you did a sweat test and found that your athlete was sweating out more. Mark Madsen, who I work with now, is a UFC fighter. was a I think a three-time Olympian and now a 4-0 UFC fighter. He's getting ready for a meat fight coming up, but he'll sweat out four pounds and he's only a 180 pound guy. And so we have to be really deliberate about replacing all of that because he trains twice a day. And this becomes particularly important for people who train twice a day that you restore all of the fluids and uh, electrolytes after that first bout so that when they go back at night, you know, they can have a good performance. And then generally speaking, the rest of the evening, they can uh, rehydrate and salt their food. And I like to take it before training again, because I like to have it periodically throughout the day. So I salt each meal and I take 500 milligrams, which is a quarter teaspoon of salt, about 30 minutes before training. I just find that I have more stamina and endurance. I don't hit a wall. I can train longer and I, I don't, I'm not distracted. 
John Meadows used to like to drink things during workouts. And if nothing more than psychologically, it just keeps you focused, it keeps you there, it keeps your intensity high. And that is obviously important that, that you, you know, your performance in the gym is going to be the primary driver over time of your results. Stan, before we, uh, we get to our quick hitters, we ask every guest, we're kind of going backwards in the pod tonight. I want to know, what, what did you hit in the gym today? We, we never got to that. What, what are you training now? And I want to know exactly what you did in the gym today. Today was bench day. I just did some singles with 455. I was trying to increase my speed at that. I'm, I'm almost 55 now, and I've got a bad shoulder. Wine, 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 and complain. You know, for 20 years, I went to the gym every week and smashed 500-pound benches for at least a rep or two or three. And now, you know, I struggle with anything in the low 400s, and it's embarrassing, but I just show my AARP card and wear my Google Me Bitch t-shirt. <laughs> I'm so fucking pissed that we talked about diet with you, man. This is the, you are the baddest dude when it comes to barbell. Like, I've been trying to get my deadlift up lately. Uh, uh, CT Fletcher invited me down in January to guest lift at his meet. And I didn't want to embarrass myself and everybody, you know, nod somewhat apologetically because I'm old. And so I've been utilizing two primary accessory exercises for deadlift because you can't deadlift heavy all the time. As you know, you just get weaker and sore and, and injured. And so I've been using the box squat a lot. And this kind of comes from Matt Whitmer's beat training out of Cincinnati. What was the other one? Explosive mechanics out of Atlanta or the general area there. Those guys, they do a ton of box squats for their athletes. And they just uh, it really helps them with their speed and explosiveness and their vert. And then I'll do a lot of pin good mornings. So it's mostly the concentric, and then I, you know, I'll, I'll just crash it down for the eccentric portion, and I'm doing a lot of good mornings. And so those two exercises, I, I brought my deadlift up from kind of struggling with 635 for a while to I just pulled a 700 with some reasonable confidence last week. And so I think I can get that north of 750 for in January, just applying these. And those two exercises, those two accessories tend to be a little lower fatigue, you know, a box squat with an SSB bar is lower fatigue than, you know, a regular squat, a, a, a low bar squat, just because you're kind of eliminating that eccentric portion of the redirect of the movement. And plus, you know, by pausing on the box, you eliminate the stretch reflex, which you don't have in deadlift. And so it forces you to kind of just be very explosive out of the hole. I haven't done really many back squats in a while because I've been focusing mainly on the deadlift using the, the SSB. But I'm doing 600-pound SSB squats for four sets of five right now, and it's, I'm pretty confident it's comfortable for me. And then I'm doing over 500-pound good mornings with that uh, camber bar also a couple times a week. How much you weigh in these days? Uh, I'm right at 250. I was down to 235, super, super lean, but I wasn't very strong at that weight. So I've kind of been eating up lately to gain some weight the last few months and uh so i'm just hanging out at 250 i try stuffing myself and it's been i mean it's been 10 years since i was over 250 260 ever since i stopped powerlifting and competing in powerlifting i dieted down from 290 to 240 and i i've stayed there ever since i've been at this about the same weight and i've tried a couple times probably over the last six years to get north of 250 and i, I just it doesn't seem like however much i stuff myself my body just won't my metabolism just keeps speeding up and speeding up and I'll wake up one morning and I'll be, you know, I might get to 252 and then I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm going. And the next thing you know, I'm 249. Wow. <laughs> I just, I have the hardest time. And, and uh, you know, people are like, F you stand because 
I can't get fat. But, right, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, I don't know what it is. But I put in a lot of, outside the gym, I put in a lot of mileage. I'll, I'll do at least 40 minutes to an hour of quote-unquote cardio a day. It's four 10-minute walks plus 10,000 steps or as part of the 10,000 steps. But I'll do 40 minutes to an hour of, of cardio, whether it's biking or 10-minute walks, sled dragging, and then, as I mentioned, a host of concentric exercises to keep my GPP up so that my conditioning is good, my blood pressure is under control, I can recover better from workouts, and, and I, again, strategically do a lot of concentric work and minimize as much eccentric loading as possible. So I use lower fatigue movements in the gym so I can just recover because that's the hardest part at my age. And then lastly, and then we'll get you out on quick three quick hitters. Do you train at home or do you go somewhere? I was training in my garage in Vegas. It was 115, 120 all summer. I, I bought into uh, a Sin City Iron, which is a, a fantastic club here in town that Eric Spoto, the bench press world champion, and, and my old training partner, Eric Asatryan, started. Uh, they bought it from Brandon Allen, who was uh, had a powerlifting gym there. And we've just thrown a ton of new equipment in there and, and got it all. I love it. I mean, it's everything that you would desire, every bar, every piece of equipment, you know, all the powerlifting stuff is in there and, and air conditioning, which is very important. Yeah, this place looks, <laughs> I'm spoiled now. This looks I, sick. It looks real yeah. nice. Yeah. Very cool. You probably get some, uh, some big NFLers coming in there, throwing around some weight, I would imagine. You know, they have their own facility. I worked with uh, Chandler Jones from the Raiders yeah. this summer. They have their own facilities, so they really don't have to go anywhere. They don't, they don't <laughs> like the attention. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. fair. All right. We'll let you go. And, uh, Three quick ones. First one's most important. What's your favorite non-alcoholic seltzer? I don't think I've ever had a seltzer. I take that back. I'll Sometimes when I'm at the airport, I'll mix orange juice and a seltzer, and I, half and half, and I enjoy that. That's decent. There we go. Homemade. You heard it here first. Yeah. Stay going for one rep max. What song are you throwing on? Welcome to the jungle. <laughs> Stay last thing. you got to throw a strength standard out there, so your favorite lift or most impressive lift to see if somebody else doing in the gym and then give us like an absolute relative value that impresses the rhino. Yeah. I trained with Eric Spoto and uh, um, he did a 675 triple with almost no effort on the bench. And I know there's a couple guys north of that, but when you're sitting there with a guy who every single time you do your max, he says, throw another plate on the bar and he close grip presses it for reps. Uh, I just, uh, all around, he's just so phenomenally strong. It was it was an honor to, to to train with him. But nowadays, man, there are so many freaks out there. It's it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, benching four fifty five for speed that doesn't even register anymore. It's it's embarrassing. I know. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. God damn it, fifty five. We'll see. We'll see how everyone's looking when they're fifty five years old, man. Hey, how can people find you? StanEfforting.com. Everything's there. I've got uh, at StanEfforting on Instagram, StanEfforting on YouTube, lots of free content and videos and Rhino's Rants there. Uh, my ebook is available at StanEfforting.com. I have a nationwide meal prep company, TheVerticalDiet.com, but you can get to it through StanEfforting.com. Unbelievably delicious meals. I just got a new provider that's doing a fantastic job. So that's, that's kind of my, my baby. I've, I'm a big meal prepper. I have been for 30 years. I love it. Stan, thank you so much for joining us, man. This is a real pleasure. we got to run it back at some point. Thanks, guys. Anytime, man. I know we just touched the surface, but it's always fun. Oh. Always good, man. Talk to you soon. That's phenomenal. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Really fun. I came in late. Man, I had to get to the lift, and as I said on the front end, but just a wealth of knowledge on the diet piece. And I know, Dan, you dove in hard on the book. 
you really liked it, right? You learned a lot of stuff and you know this stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, I know this stuff very, you know, I mean, I guess at the surface level, because, you know, we've, we've been talking about it and, you know, I've been interested in it for a long time, but the, the amount of research he has done to that book, like I can't state it enough, like check through his bibliography of citations, like it is all great peer reviewed science to back up what he's saying. And like I said, I, I'd really encourage people to eat a little bit more red meat based on his. Fact. How was it from an understanding perspective, like the layman, did you. You're not uh, was, blaming. I'm just saying, but like, did you get it right away or does he break it down and make oh, it? Oh yeah. Very simple. It's just, it's just little choices. Yeah. So he has like a whole calculator. You kind of calculate your calories in calories out your macros. So you put your activity level, your weight, how tall you are and your um, age. And he kind of gives you a calculator of how much, you know, based on if you're trying to gain weight, lose weight, maintain weight, and then your macronutrient breakdown. And then he kind of tells you how to fill the macros up, how the micros up. So the vertical diet is the book. Couldn't recommend it any more highly. Really good stuff. That was a lips and recommendation. So beautiful lips and the gift that keeps on giving. All right. Now let's, uh, let's talk about that brisket you're going to throw on. Yeah, man, I, I go with the, so if anybody's smoked a brisket out there, the first two are like my test runs. The third one was really, really, really like solid, like exactly how you want it. So this will be my fourth brisket, 14 pounds. Very excited. I follow the Franklin videos religiously on YouTube. Nick, I know you sent me one that I'll check out, but Franklin just uses a salt and pepper rub. So if you're doing a brisket out there, cut off all the hard shit, salt and pepper rub, throw a bucket of water in the smoker with it, low and slow, about an hour a pound. There you go. Brisket. Where are you going? 225? Yeah, I think it's 225. I have to look it up. I, I just, I, I always forget. I might do one this weekend. I'm not sure. I'll tell you one thing about Sam's Club. I know it's, you know, I, I go back and forth. I don't love it, but it's kind of the best option or area. Always a great selection of brisket. They had a, a 20 pounder, a 14 pounder, two 12s, and a 16. You didn't go 20, huh? The 20 is just, I mean, I guess it actually would have probably made the smoke easier. It's just so, so bulky. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so big. I mean, the 14 pounds, big 20 is even bigger. I mean, barely fits in the, the cart. What are you doing time. this weekend from a meat perspective? Anything good, Robbie? You know, nothing on the docket, unfortunately. I got nothing for the smoke section here. I'm, I've been slacking. Just been stocking up on breasts and thighs from Costco and pulling out of the freezer and do my meal prep. Wait, I did a pork loin earlier this week. It was nice. It's like 15 bucks. So cheap. So cheap. The cheapness to macro ratio I is know. insane. It's insane. Uh, threw it on 225 till it was 145 internal. Yanked it out. Put it on some rice and Brussels sprouts. Three days of just cheap, healthy, set it and forget it, lunch and dinner. It's fantastic. I'm curious, what do you use? So in that meal prep, do you use any like sauce, like hot sauce? Like what's your go-to? Sometimes some uh, low sodium soy sauce to throw over yeah, top. I, always uh, goes, I love soy sauce. Yeah, I do too. And usually we do the uh, Brussels sprouts in the air smoker with some uh, coconut aminos. So that blends kind of nicely over top of the, I do like basmati rice, one of those 90 second packs. So a couple little chunks of the pork. And that usually does it for me. But like you guys said, and like you teed up, Rob, it's just it's such a healthy, cheap meat. Like there's really no reason not to get it. And for some reason, my mind just I don't I don't look for it. So I miss it a lot. So grabbed a couple. Yeah, we should ask the, the rhino what he thought about the pork tenderloin, where that fits in the, the vertical. Yeah, when we back. have him back, we'll ask him more specific about that kind of stuff. Dan, what have you been uh, streaming? Anything good? 
been pretty slow on the streaming front, but I was, I was actually talking with uh, Rob. I streamed Chucky. There's a show. So remember fucking Child's Play? Oh, There's yeah. actually a show called Chucky. And I was talking about my wife and my kids are around. My kids are like infatuated. There's like a doll that kills people. <laughs> so I was like, so obviously they can't watch it, but I was like, oh, I'll try it. It was it was pretty pretty bad, and that's even coming from me who likes some really, you know, out of pocket shit. So I I kind of <laughs> quit at like a an episode and a half in. But Robbie said he had some terrors with Chucky growing up that I thought he could elaborate with on the pod. Couldn't watch Child's Play if Chucky came on the screen; it would ruin my whole week. My parents had a Chucky doll in the house; it was the only thing that could like really get to me and. I, I just do not like dolls. I, I think I'm kind of over it, but it's still dolls just creep me out. And Chucky's the the pinnacle of dolls. Where do you stand on Chucky and Child's Play, Nick? I just didn't like when he would hang out under the steps and like pull the people's oh. feet out when they're walking down. I always wondered, like, well, why aren't their backs to those steps? And I don't know, man. It's kind of always. There's some serious architectural flaws in the uh, the child's play movies. I think it solve a lot of problems. Yeah, I, I think if I went back and watched it, I'd probably do a little bit more laughing and being scared. But man, that shit had me shook there for a hot minute. When you're like seven, and you're watching that. It's pretty fucking oh, scary. Well, when you're seven and you're watching it, it is, there's nothing scarier than your toys coming to life to kill you. Yeah, <laughs> your I remember, parents would never believe you. Like literally, no, you could just yeah. have a knife Fucked. in your chest and they'd be like. <laughs> Oh, that was your brother that. or your sister. Right? <laughs> no one, your doll didn't do that. Yeah, he's over there just being a jackass. That's funny. Yeah, look, boys, football's back, so there's not that much to stream, right? Like w- one day, we yeah, like clean I mean, shot. Dude, how much? It was so great to have football back. I mean, we text enough about the fantasy and everything, and your two a pick, which we can get into in further detail. He actually looked somewhat serviceable, and, and, and meanwhile, I'm making fun of you for your two a pick, and I'm fucking. Bidding $25 on goddamn Carson Wentz, the ginger assassin, the fucking, oh, God, my quarterback situation is very rough. It's not good. Oh, talking about streaming, I actually got one this week. Is uh, Oh, yes. You know how much I love rewatchables. It's the best thing Dan's ever given to me in his whole life. And they're obsessed with heat. And it's one of those movies that's always been on my list, and I never watch it. It's just so long. I finally watch it, and I get it, dude. That is Pete so Pacino. Uh, this the cast is star studded, and I I've been watching the Pacino highlights from the movie on YouTube because it just cracks me up, dude. That is that is pinnacle of Pacino. It's funny because I heard, and I don't know if it's true, and I haven't watched that movie in probably fifteen years, so I definitely don't have not seen it through an adult's eyes. I think I like watched it on TV one time, so it was so long. Supposedly they were never in the same room. Or, like, the scenes are made to... I don't remember this. I think that uh, they, like, debunked that on, on Rewatchables. That okay. was the rumor. Okay. It was just two mega stars like, De Niro and Pacino. It just didn't just, make just sense to me, because I, thought I, I thought I remember seeing scenes where I was like, well, they gotta be in the same room together. Like, what do you fucking yeah. mean? Like, the camera play is not like that the entire movie. Dude, that diner scene so so good. I do remember that. Like one of the better endings too. Like the way that movie ends, and like I love the airport scene after the blow up at the hotel where everyone evacuates. Like that is one of the coolest scenes ever. I love that. Makes me want to go back and watch any given Sunday. Another classic rewatchable with, with Pacino just given the the inches speech. I'll give you another one that I rewatched recently. I don't know if I talked about it on the pod, but another Michael Mann movie that makes a great rewatchables podcast is Last of the Mohicans. If you haven't seen that in a while, just a fucking all timer. Been a long time on that one. So yeah. Fire fire that back up if you if you if you want to. Nick, 
we went over smokes. What are you, you, you did the pork tenderloin. What are you uh, throwing out there for gym hitters? Oh, hitter. I don't have anything this week. What do you got? Can you get the title on your screen for to get it out there in time here? Yes. No, this is an easy title. Guns N' Roses by uh, Jay-Z and Lenny Kravitz, a song that I didn't know existed. And Nick was sending over tracks from the Jay-Z album I can't remember. And I was like, oh, I never listened to this album. So I gave it a listen. And that was my favorite one. Uh, I got Jay-Z and Lenny Kravitz by Guns N' Roses. It's fucked up. <laughs> So we're just, okay, we're going to pretend like we're not just saying the exact same song. Perfect. I don't know if I, my brain stopped or what, but perfect. We're going to hammer that. Boys, we'll be back again next week. I'll be in Austin, Texas. You might be doing it just you two and a guest. Maybe I call in. I don't know. But hope you guys enjoyed this, and we made a new friend, so I'm excited. Stay weird, Nick. All right, boys. That was fun. All right. Bye-bye.